All right, I'll open us in a brief word of prayer, and then we will get this show on the road this morning. Oh God, we thank you for uh, for your church. Lord, we thank you for um, your word, and that we have the freedom in this country right now to come and to worship you and to learn about you and uh, to proclaim your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would not take that for granted because not everyone in the world has this freedom today. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, we would use this and that we would dedicate our hearts and our minds to the study of your word and that uh, it would change us. Uh, We pray that you would accomplish what you want to do through your Holy Spirit today. We pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, open up with me to Acts chapter 1. We're not going to take a look at this text uh, right away here, so just kind of keep your finger in the text, but I just want you to turn there so that you're ready for in a little bit. Acts uh, chapter 1. We are, of course, this morning, we're continuing our series in the sacraments, and uh, we're looking at baptism. We are approaching the end of our... uh, of the part of this series that's focusing on baptism because we'll make the transition to the Lord's Supper uh, in a few weeks. But we are right now in our baptism section and we are looking at a theology of baptism right now. So you remember we looked at the history of baptism. We looked at um, sort of the uh, lots of different biblical texts and themes surrounding baptism like covenant and circumcision and those sorts of things. And now uh, at this point we are looking at the theology of baptism. So we're trying to take all of the data, all of the pieces that we've been grabbing from all over the place, and we're trying to now put them together systematically, clearly, precisely, and try to uh, just get at the substance of baptism, try to understand what it is and uh, all various questions related to it. So last week we started the theology of baptism by looking at the substance of baptism. And just by way of review, for those of you who weren't here or if you've forgotten, hopefully you haven't forgotten, but if you have... Uh, by way of review, right, we talked about that the substance of baptism is that it is a sign and a seal of the promises of God in the covenant of grace. Right? So we talked about the fact that baptism is a sign in that it's a visible word of God, that it, it presents the promises of God in a way that we can see. Right? As opposed to, or not really opposed to, but in connection with how we read the promises of God here in the Bible. Right? The sacraments present the word in a visible form. So that's what we mean when we say that it's a sign. And then we also say it's a seal. Meaning that through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the visible word, working through the sacraments, the Spirit seals the promises of God in the covenant of grace on our hearts and our minds. And that's what strengthens our faith. This is why Calvin talks about how the sacraments are designed to be sanctifying grace. Right? They work to strengthen our faith in the promises of God in the covenant. Okay? And we talked about last week the, pro- the specific promises that are in view here in the covenant of grace that are signified in baptism. Right? We talked about the engrafting into Christ of regeneration or of spirit baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about remission of sins and also of, of walking in newness of life. Right? So you've got all these These major promises that are at work being visibly shown in the sacraments and then sealed by the Holy Spirit on our hearts, strengthening our faith in those promises of God. The same way that the Spirit works through the Word, the written Word, to seal those promises on our hearts, okay? So, that's the substance of baptism. 
right? It's a sign and seal of the promises of God in the covenant of grace. That's the essence of what we talked about last week. All right, so that's what baptism is. But there's three more themes that we want to look at throughout the rest of our time looking at baptism. Right? And the second of those themes is right here that we're going to deal with today. Okay? Today, we want to deal with the question of the mode of baptism. Okay? The mode of baptism. Now, just so that we can get a little bit of interaction here, uh, what do we mean when we talk about the mode of baptism? What's in view there? Right. Yeah, right. Good. All right. There you go. All right. So you've got all the bases covered is what you're saying. All right. So, yeah, that's right. The mode of baptism, right? When we talk about that, we're talking about how we should actually administer baptism. Right. And so that actually encompasses more things than just the amount of water that we use or how we apply it. Right? The most basic way that we can talk about the mode of baptism, just in Orthodox Christianity, is we say baptism has to be in the name of the triune God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, and baptism has to be done with water. Those are the two basic components of the mode of baptism, how we administer it. It has to be in the name of the triune God, and it has to be done with water. Um, now, there may be some people who want to say, well, you know, could you use another liquid in an emergency situation or something? But that's beside the point. We're just talking about the normal way that we administer baptism. It's with water, and it's in the name of the triune God. Okay? Now, there's no controversy there, for the most part, within Christianity. We all recognize we've got to baptize in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it has to be done with water. That's not the controversial part. The controversial part is how much water and in what way should the water be applied to the recipients. And, of course, this debate is pretty fierce between, you know, say, Presbyterians and Baptists, or between Baptists and Roman Catholics, or between Baptists and Lutherans and so on. In other words, there's a certain Christian tradition out there called the Baptist movement, which we all know about, right? And they are very clear about what they believe about the mode of baptism. Right? For them, at least for most of them, maybe there are some who are slightly different than this, but for most of them, they say, when you apply baptism, you cannot apply baptism with sprinkling, and you cannot apply baptism with pouring. Those are illegitimate. The only way, according to a Baptist, that you can apply baptism to someone is by immersion. Right? That is, you have to dunk under the water, as we said a moment ago. Right? You have to go completely under and then come back up. That's the only valid form of baptism for the Baptist. Okay? Now, they make a case for that. We're not going to talk specifically about their case for that. Um, but what I just want you to be aware of is the fact that there is a great uh, controversy about how baptism should be applied. And it's, you know, and in some cases for Baptists especially, it's caused them to, to say essentially that, you know, if you were baptized as a child, illegitimate. You're not actually baptized. If you were baptized as an adult, but your baptism was done by pouring or sprinkling, you're also not baptized at all. So according to that view, then, there are lots of Christians that aren't baptized essentially. 
And I just want you to know that when we come at this from a traditional Reformed theological perspective, right, from a Presbyterian perspective here, we, along with the Baptists, recognize that immersion is a valid form of baptism. We don't deny that. If you were baptized by being fully immersed in the water, great, that is a valid baptism. We have no problem with that. The distinction between us and the Baptists on the mode of baptism is that we not only recognize that immersion is a valid form, but we also recognize that there are other valid forms as well, like pouring and like sprinkling. Okay? So our view is a view of, of inclusiveness. We say there are multiple forms of the mode of baptism that are legitimate, not just immersion. And so what we want to do then this morning is we want to essentially show that we think this is biblical. Right? We want to see what the Bible has to say about this. And I think that it will back up what I just said. It will back up traditional Reformed theology here that the mode of baptism can be immersion, sprinkling, or pouring. Right? We can use all three or any of the three. Okay, So we're going to defend that proposition this morning right, in two ways. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the mode of baptism in church history, just very, very briefly. And then the second thing I want to do is look at the mode of baptism in Scripture. And I think we're going to see how this works itself out. So firstly, then, the mode of baptism in history. Just really quickly, uh, church history confirms, so we're looking at the very early church here. Early church history confirms that both immersion and pouring and sprinkling were used as far back as we can go. Right, so as far back into the early church history as we can go, the church was practicing all three modes of baptism. It's not like the early church was only sprinkling, or that they were only pouring, or that they were only immersing. No, they were doing all three. We have cave paintings of people standing in a pool of water with someone pouring water over their head, and then an inscription next to it that says, it's the baptism of such and such a person. So we can see pouring, we can see immersion, we can see all these different things in early church uh, cave drawings, in early church writings, etc. So there's no one monolithic form of baptism. They're practicing it in all the different modes in the early church. Now this is how the church operated all the way up until about the 1600s. So all the way up until just after the Reformation. The whole church was basically in agreement. We can practice baptism through immersion, sprinkling, or pouring. There was really no controversy about that, no major issues, until we get to the 1600s. And it's in the 1600s that we have, not the Anabaptists, the Anabaptists were actually uh, practiced baptism by pouring, rather the first real clear, concise statement that we have to baptize by immersion and by immersion only comes from the English Baptists in the 1640s. So these were guys who sort of divorced themselves from the Puritan movement, and they were, you know, uh, Congregationalist, Reformed people, but they rejected infant baptism, and they rejected baptism by sprinkling and pouring. This is really the first time we have a full-fledged movement saying, we're only going to baptize by immersion. And then their views got codified in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is a confession that many Reformed Baptists still hold to today. Uh, very important. Actually, just kind of interestingly, the London Baptist Confession is actually basically a slightly edited version of the Westminster Confession, 
Well, basically what they did was they took our confession and they changed the stuff about the sacraments and then it became their confession. So I think that's kind of cool, actually. We have a lot in common with them. Uh, but they, did, they do uh, embrace immersion-only baptism. Okay? So that's where uh, immersion only comes from. It didn't really come from the early church, didn't come from the medieval period. It shows up in the 1600s and then really hits Christianity with this massive movement and this really strong dogma. We have to do it this way. There's no other way to do it. We have to baptize in this way. And to this day, right, I'm sure you know if you've got Baptist friends that you've talked about this with, they are very concerned about this issue. Very strongly saying, baptisms only by immersion. Right? Now, I said that would be really brief. That was really brief. Right? That's the mode of baptism in history. I just want you to know where it, this immersion-only idea comes from. All right? It comes from the 1600s and develops from there. So, really then, if you're a, if you're a strong Baptist who's consistent with their theology, then you, you essentially have to say that for 1,600 years, most baptisms performed in the Christian church were not legitimate baptisms. Right? I mean, you kind of have to say that because they weren't immersions. Now, that's not an argument against the Baptists. right? It's very possible that for 1,600 years, the most baptisms weren't legitimate. That, that could be the case. But that's a pretty strong position. And to me, I just don't see that being very likely. And I especially don't see that very likely in light of the fact that the Scripture is not clear enough to make assertions like that. So as we turn now to the mode of baptism in Scripture, I think we're going to see Scripture doesn't indicate that baptisms have to be done by immersion. In fact, the Scripture actually indicates that there are many different modes of baptism that we can use. And so let's turn now to the Scriptures. This is the important part, right? History doesn't answer this question. History is helpful to sort of place ourselves within the debate or to place ourselves within the, the theological and biblical conversation. But we want to answer this question ultimately from Scripture. So firstly then, just by way of introduction, right, as Presbyterians, we agree immersion can be a valid form of baptism. We have no problem with that. The issue is we want to say it's not the only valid form of baptism, and so if we want to show that from Scripture, all we have to do is find one instance where baptism doesn't or can't mean immersion. You see that? Because we are inclusive. All of the modes are valid. So we just have to show one instance where it doesn't. Baptists have, have an argument right, that bleeds from a scratch because they have to show every single instance has to be immersion. We say, no, if we can find one instance, it actually proves our case. Okay? So that's what we're going to do here. Let's look at the Old Testament first. Just, this is, by the way, this Old Testament part is just summarizing a great bit of what we've already talked about earlier in this series. So firstly... Uh, you remember in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but remember we spent a whole session here talking about how the author of Hebrews understood the Levitical baptisms. Right? The author of Hebrews talks about the baptisms that were performed in the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. Well, when we, in that session, we went back and looked at those ceremonial baptisms that the author of Hebrews is referring to, and we saw that those baptisms were performed... 
by immersion, by pouring, and by sprinkling. Remember that? That's how the priests would apply all the different washings that they were doing. So already in the Old Testament, we have different modes of baptism at work. Different modes of the ceremonial washings of the Levitical laws, which the author of Hebrews refers to as baptisms. So that's one thing, just big picture from the Old Testament. Secondly, in the book of Psalms, as well as in the book of Isaiah, right, the idea of pouring and sprinkling out is a common theme associated with purification, the forgiveness of sins, and atonement. And actually this applies also to the whole of the Old Testament, right? Because in the, in the um, sacrificial laws of Leviticus, the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar, right? symbolizing right, the shedding of the blood, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, Christ is the one whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of Calvary for us. And baptism is pointing toward, as we already said, it's a sign and seal of forgiveness of sins. It just fits with the theology of baptism that sprinkling and pouring would be a valid mode theologically. There's nothing theologically against it that somehow those are unfit or uh, uh, troublesome ways of administering it. No, they fit the symbolism just as much as immersion does. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But again, these are big picture patterns that we're seeing in the Old Testament. And then uh, thirdly, from Ezekiel 36, you remember we talked about that passage as well. You don't have to turn there. But in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel, as he's talking about the new covenant and the promises that God offers there, he talks about the fact that we will be sprinkled with living waters. Again, what Ezekiel is doing is he's grabbing the sprinkling atonement language from Leviticus, and he is applying it to the new covenant saying we'll be sprinkled with living waters. Sounds like baptism to me, or at least the same symbolism as baptism is attempting to convey. So there again, we have sprinkling associated with atonement and with forgiveness of sins and with water. So all of this to say, the Old Testament patterns support the idea that baptism as a a sign and seal of the promises of God can easily convey its meaning by immersion, by sprinkling, or by pouring. Okay? Now, none of those arguments are proof positive. Right? They're just big picture patterns that we see. The more specific proofs and the more specific ways to understand this come from the New Testament itself. So now we turn to the New Testament, as I'm trying to do all of this in a half an hour. Right? This is a big subject, but turning now to the New Testament. All right? And what we find in the New Testament is, get this, Largely speaking, in the New Testament, it is very much silent on this specific mode of baptism. There's nowhere in the New Testament where it says baptism means immersion. There's nowhere in the New Testament where baptism has to mean immersion. Rather, the text just says he was baptized, he and his household. That person got baptized. John went out baptizing. It's like the authors of the New Testament already expected the readers to know what baptism is and how it should be administered. Well, where would they get that knowledge? I would say from the Old Testament, where the three modes were used in those baptisms. But anyway, largely speaking, the New Testament is silent on the explicit mode of baptism. And there are places in the New Testament where baptism by immersion just seems either extremely unlikely 
or where it just couldn't be the case. Now, here's a couple of examples. Um, my Baptist brothers will point to the various passages in the New Testament where it says that, you know, he went, say Jesus, for example, when he's getting baptized. It says Jesus, right, he went down into the river. That's what the text says. And so they'll say, well, see, Jesus went down into the river. He went down into the water. He was immersed. Is it possible that that's what it's saying? Of course it's possible. It's certainly possible that Jesus went down into the river, meaning he went down under the water in his baptism. Definitely possible. However, it is not the only way to read that text. In fact, parallel texts like from Acts chapter 8 show us that it can't mean that he went into the water in the sense that he went under the water and was immersed. Because in Acts chapter 8, we're told that both Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water. Well, Philip is the one baptizing the eunuch. So Philip's not being immersed. He's already been baptized. Yet it says they both went down into the water. See, there it can't be talking about immersion. There it seems to be saying they went down the bank of the river and walked into the water. See, that's what I think it's talking about with Jesus, too. If you've ever been to the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, which I have, you definitely walk down a bank. In fact, there's a very steep flight of steps to get down to the Jordan River. I would easily say I went down into the Jordan River, not meaning that I was immersed, but rather that I went down the steep bank to get to the river. Okay, So this is one of the, the Baptist chief ways of trying to say, see, it's immersion. He went down into the river. Well, not necessarily. In fact, there are places where it can't mean that. So this is an example where it can't mean immersion. Another example would be um, that Paul was baptized in a house. They didn't really have deep places of water and houses like that in the ancient world. Mark chapter 7 verse 4 says that there was... Actually, let's just turn to Mark chapter 4. Actually, that would be really helpful for you. Mark, uh, sorry, not chapter 4, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, and then at verse 4. Here's what it says. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay? Now, you see in, in your English there it says washing, right? Again, like in Hebrews 9, the word there is not washing. I mean, that's a fine translation, but the Greek word itself is baptism. Okay? So what it's saying is that they were baptizing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. But you see in the English, it's going to translate it as washing, because obviously that's what it's saying in the context. Now, can you immerse a cup when you're washing it? Of course you can. I do that all the time when I'm washing the dishes at home in the sink, right? You can immerse a pot. You can immerse, you know, a, a dining vessels and so on. I'm not sure how you immerse a dining couch, though. I suppose you could throw it in the river if you really want to get that sucker clean, but the problem is... 
you know, you're going to ruin it, right? So it doesn't make sense to immerse a dining couch. Rather, what's in view there is a kind of sprinkling or pouring or just a general washing. See, there's no indication here as we study this word as it shows in the New Testament that it means immersion necessarily. Here it clearly doesn't. Here it clearly has in view just a general washing, which is exactly what we argued earlier on in this series when we talked about baptism as washing. Okay? So baptism here can't mean immersion, and there's a number of other things here I've got listed. Um, in Acts 16, uh, the Philippian jailer and his family are baptized. And they're baptized with the same water that they used to clean Paul's wounds. Okay, well, I suppose it's possible that Paul stepped into their family hot tub in order to clean his wounds. I think it's more likely, though, that, you know, like Jesus, when they washed his, or like when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, they had a bowl of water. And they dipped into the water, and they put the water on him in that way. So, all of this to say, right, there's nowhere in the New Testament where baptism has to be explicitly immersion. It certainly can be. And if you want to take certain instances where it means immersion, great. Go ahead and do that. That can be legitimate. It can be a valid inference from the text. But as we can see, there are certain instances where it doesn't mean immersion and where it simply can't because it just doesn't make any sense. It has to be something else. Okay. Now, that's where we see it doesn't mean immersion. In the, te- in the New Testament text... Really, there is no verse that explicitly refers to a mode of baptism, except one. There is one passage in the New Testament that explicitly refers to a particular mode of the administration of baptism. Okay, And that is in Acts chapter 1 which is why I had you turn there earlier. So now let's look at that passage. I want to read for you the words of Jesus here. I'm going to start with verse 5 and just read a couple of verses. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here's Jesus talking about spirit baptism. He's talking about the fact that the disciples are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Of course, echoing John's prophecy at the beginning of Luke when John says that Jesus is going to come baptizing in the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, if you turn the page of your Bible to chapter 2, verse 17. Here, Peter, Pentecost has happened. The baptism of the Spirit has happened. And Peter is explaining how they know that this baptism is from God. And he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the prophet Joel and he says, Joel prophesied about this baptism of the Spirit. And then Peter quotes the text, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Peter says the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the prophet Joel. So now we do have one text. It gives us an explicit definition or an explicit mode of baptism. And that's pouring. Now, of course, Peter is talking here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily the the water baptism. But nonetheless, the concept of baptism is linked to pouring out of the Spirit. You see that? So here, pouring is is an explicit mode of of baptism, at least symbolically. Okay? 
This, by the way, is um, this kind of thing is one of the reasons why Baptists argue for immersion as the only valid form. Is because they'll say, well, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that, that by baptism we have been buried with Christ in order that we may be raised with him. And they say, see, there you have to have immersion because immersion shows that you're being buried with Christ under the water and then you're being raised to life. Right? Which, again, is why we Presbyterians say, great, that's a great valid form. You're right that immersion is showing that. But you know what immersion doesn't show is the outpouring of the Spirit. Pouring. If we practice baptism as pouring, now that does show the outpouring of the Spirit because here it's linked explicitly with that. And so what we Presbyterians argue and what traditional Reformed theology has argued for centuries is that there are multiple valid forms of baptism because each of the different modes of baptism immersion, sprinkling, or pouring, links to a visible demonstration of different promises of the covenant of grace. So let me show you what I mean by that, just as we finish up here. Baptism's various modes all signify different promises. For example, we already talked about this, immersion is a visible representation, a visible word of God signifying being buried with Christ under the water, in the flood waters of, of God's wrath, like Noah's flood, and then being raised to newness of life. That's straight out of Romans chapter 6. There you've got immersion showing us that. Immersion showing the flood waters of God's judgment as we've been buried with Christ in his death, so that as he was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. Right? That's what immersion shows us. We take a look at sprinkling. If we practice baptism as sprinkling, here's what that shows us, right? We've already talked about this. Atonement, forgiveness of sins, sacrifice. The imagery of sprinkling comes right out of all over the Old Testament. As sprinkling is symbolic of the sprinkling of blood on the altar, of the atonement of Christ, forgiveness of sins, of the shed blood of the Lamb. And baptism, right, is symbolizing and signifying and sealing the promises of God that Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his shed and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat of Calvary is efficient for us to forgive our sins and to save us. And baptism shows us that. And then finally then, pouring. What does the mode of pouring show us in baptism? Well, that shows us about the promises of spirit baptism, Namely, of regeneration, which we talked about last week. Right? The outpouring of the Spirit shows us the, the, out, or sorry, the, the pouring out of the water of baptism shows us the outpouring of the Spirit. And that's linked right there with Joel. That's linked with texts in Isaiah as well as in Ezekiel. I was just reading a text this morning in Isaiah that talked about God in the latter days pouring out his Spirit. So, basically, just to sum it up here, guys. In Reformed theology, and as Presbyterians, we don't have a problem with immersion. What we have a problem with is immersion only. Because we see in the big picture of Scripture that immersion, sprinkling, and pouring are all valid forms. And they all are visible words of God, signifying the various promises of God in a more special way. All right? Immersion showing baptismal judgment, being buried with Christ and raised with him, sprinkling showing us the atonement of Christ, and pouring showing us regeneration, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit.
Okay? And we do that not just because we don't like arguing, not just because we want to be inclusive of all the different views or whatever, but we do that because we think Scripture is that way. It's not sufficiently clear to say this is the only valid form. Scripture is not clear enough to make that case or to bind the conscience in that way. Uh, the scripture leaves the door open and describes baptism through various modes. And so we should leave that door open too. Okay? That is the, the Reformed position on that. And I think it's the biblical one. All right. All right. That's all that I've got for this morning. We're out of time. We've got to wrap up. Um, just so you know, Jordan and I are going to be out of town for the next two weeks. We're going to be heading up north for Christmas, uh, spend the time with our families. So Grant is going to take over the Sunday school for a couple of weeks. I don't, he's not doing anything with this series. He's doing his own thing. Grant, do you know what you're doing yet? Okay, awesome. Yeah, so that's a good, good two chapters of stuff there that he can work through with you. So really good. Um, so yeah, so that will be the next two weeks. He'll be doing the Sunday school and uh, I'm sure it will be really good. And after those two weeks, I'll return then in January, and we will spend two more weeks on baptism, and then we'll move on to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, well, let's close in prayer then. We are out of time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you for the sacraments, Lord. Lord, uh, we, we would sure like it if your word would be, um, I don't want to say more clear, but if, if we could have specific statements that relate to the controversies of our day. Uh, That would be helpful. Uh, But Lord, in your wisdom, you haven't done that. You've wanted us to search your word and to think carefully and to put two and two together. And uh, God, we pray that you would help us to do that with the least amount of errors as possible and that we would uh, understand as much of your word as possible. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity of thought and help us to love your sacraments, to love baptism, to love the Lord's Supper, and to not allow the controversy to water down their importance in our lives and the importance of understanding them. Oh God, we pray uh, for uh, the church service this morning, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.